This morning we will conclude our study through the book of Colossians. It's our last uh, last message in this book. I hope it's been helpful to you and encouraging. And as we think of the mystery of Christ that is presented in the book of Colossians, which is uh, threefold, and I hope that you've all Remember what the mystery of Colossians is. It is all in Christ, Christ in you, and you in the church. And so what we find in in not just the book of Colossians, but really in in all of the Apostle Paul's letters, is this constant theme of Christ being completely sufficient. There's nothing lacking in Christ. Amen? Everything necessary for a man's salvation is, um, is found in a person. It's not found in things. Um, it's not found in, in uh, emotional feelings, but everything necessary for a person to be one with God, uh, in harmony with God, fellowshipping with God is found in a person. And then if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, that person lives inside of you. And, and he brings all of those things inside of you, and he makes you in harmony with God. You're in fellowship with God on the basis of Christ, right? And so you have perfect fellowship with God because Christ is in perfect fellowship with God. And then the last part of that of that uh, mystery is you're in the church. And we're all in the church, and we're all in the church for the purpose of manifesting that mystery. And so we're, our job is to make what Christ has accomplished, our job is to make it visible to the world around us so that they can see what Christ has accomplished, and they can see the impact of what Christ has accomplished on an individual's life. This is why um, the church's ministry, the attitude that we live in, the, the purity that we function in, our, our, our peace, our joy, all of those things become important because we're reflecting on a mystery, That to the lost world, they don't understand it, they can't see it, they can't comprehend it, but we understand it, we can see it, we comprehend it, and we try to make it visible to them, okay? So that's what the church is all about. And this morning, we're going to, this is the, the message is entitled, The Benediction of the Mystery, or The Benediction to the Mystery of Christ, and I believe in this benediction, it's interesting because the Apostle Paul just names off several of his companions. He gives a, a, a list of about 10 companions that he's walked with through this ministry that he's participated with, that he's uh, worked with as relates to the church at Colossians. And he just names them off and he names off certain features about them. And a few things to note about them, and we're going to go into some details uh, in regards to these men, that they're, they're, very, they're, not, they're not well-known men. They're well-known probably to the church at Colossae, but to the rest of Scripture, you'll find that there's little mention, except for possibly Luke. Um, obviously, he wrote one of the books of the Bible or two of the books of the Bible, so he has some mention. But otherwise, you have insignificant men being mentioned or insignificant people uh, being mentioned in this passage of Scripture. So it's important to note that because what we're dealing with is these people were participants in the manifestation of this mystery, right? And they were insignificant people. They were, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that God has chosen the poor things 
He's chosen the, the foolish things and he's chosen the insignificant things or the nobodies of this world to, to manifest his glory. So if you're here this morning and you think, well, I don't really have anything to offer, well, you're perfect for God's glory. God can take and use you in a very, very uh, significant way to manifest what he can accomplish through an individual because really it's not about you, right? It's all about him. We want the world to see Christ. We want the church to see and know Christ, and therefore we live a certain way so that the world can see Christ. That's what our goal is. And they're watching. As much as we want to deny the fact that the world is watching us, they are watching us. And they want to see, uh, and they need to see Christ in an appropriate way. Read a few uh, references here, and then we'll get to our text. Matthew 5 and verse 16, the Lord talks about, in the verses around this um, verse, talks about being salt of the earth, that we are the salt of the earth. And it says, in the same way, and, and we are the light of the world, and it says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then First Peter 2 and verse 12 tell, says it this way, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And the Gentiles is just another way of saying those who are unbelievers in the context of Scripture, so that, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In these verses and in other verses throughout the scriptures, we see a constant theme, a constant call to the church for us to be living in such a way that as the world watches us, they see Christ and then they ultimately will come, I think, to glorify God in heaven is, a, is another way of saying to come to salvation, to come to a submission and a surrender. So we're, that, we're the witness of Christ and it's a witness through our, our voices. We speak the gospel, but it's also a witness through our actions. We live the gospel. Um, they call it kind of a relationship evangelism. And some people are good at relationship evangelism, and they, they don't want to do it with their mouth. And some people do it with their mouth, but they're not relationship evangelists. I think the Bible really promotes both. We should be relationally evangelistic, how we live, how we function, how we interact amongst ourselves. And we should also be verbal evangelists. We should tell people the gospel. Why? Uh, let, let them know why we have a hope in ourselves. And, re- and remember this. And uh, Paul, uh, uh, Peter tells us to be ready to give an answer to every man for the hope that is within you. Um, that means that you have to be displaying a hope. And they have to ask you, why, is there, why do you have this hope? And then you can explain it to them. But if they don't see it and they don't ask the question, then you don't ever have an opportunity to explain it to them. So it starts with, it starts with us living it. And then people asking question of, oh, we're going through the same difficulty, but man, you sure respond to it differently than I do. What is it that keeps you going? What is it that keeps you motivated? One of the things that we know in this life is, is that one of, the, one of the leveling influences of this world is problems, Right? Everybody deals with the same problems, health problems, financial problems, family problems, husband problems, wife problems, children problems. We all have those problems, right? The distinction for a Christian is how we deal with those problems. The distinction for a Christian is what is our attitude as we walk through those problems. And the response from the world is, is what do you have that we don't have? And our answer is, we have Christ, 
right? But if we never hear the question, we never get to give the answer. And I assume, I assume that you would agree with me that we rarely hear that question anymore because we as Christians have learned to respond just like the world to our problems and the world says, well, they're just like we are, right? The divorce rates amongst Christians and non-Christians are the same. So how do we respond to our relationship problems? The same way the world does. We have to live in such a way that the world says there's something different about the church. And then they will ask the question and then we can give that answer. And that goes for you and your families. I'll tell you a little antidote before we read our text. I had a friend once, he came to me, he said, Pastor John, I was this, this is the first church I pastored in, in, in Ohio and he was... Um, just a young guy, he, he had gotten saved, he wanted to live for the Lord, but he wanted to influence his family for the Lord too, and all of his family were unbelievers. And he came to me and said, Pastor John, he said, how can I influence my family for the Lord? How can I influence them to, to be saved? And I asked him, his name was Tony, no one here will know him, so I can tell you his name. His name was Tony, we're still friends. He said, I said to him, Tony, what is your greatest weakness? And he said, I'm a very angry person. It's like I have very, very short fuse and I get angry all the time, angry at my kids, angry at my wife, angry at my family. And I said, does your family know that? He's like, oh yeah. He's like, my family knows that I'm an angry person. I said this to, the, to him, if you want to convince your family that Christ is sufficient, then win over your anger. Win over it. Because they'll ask the question, what has happened to you? They'll ask you. You won't even have to go and push the gospel down their throat. They'll be like, what in the world is going on in your life, right? Because something has changed. You've won over something that the world, from the world's perspective, it's impossible to win over. And that's a testimony to Christ in you, right? And then you can witness that to those around you and share with them that message. So we want all of that to say this. We want to live out the mystery that is within us, which is Christ is sufficient and he is in me, right? And that's all I need. I don't, I don't need anything else. I don't need a full bank account. I don't need all of the worldly things. That the, I don't need a fancy car or a big house. I don't need those things. I, Christ is enough, right? I mean, the man who, Matthew 13, the parable is the man who finds the pearl of great price, which is a, a reference to Christ. He goes and he sells all that he has so that he can have that pearl the treasure of Christ. So we want to live out, we want to manifest the, uh, the mystery of Christ, which is he is sufficient and he is inside of you. He is your sufficiency. Amen? He is, right? We, we, we believe that here. We do, really. Seriously, if you're visiting, we do believe that here. Amen? All right, there we go. Now we know. We need some of that Jula energy up here. <laughs> I think to myself, man, I'm never going to be able to match that energy. <laughs> and I'm not. So uh, let's read it. Let's read it together. And we're going to look at some of these people um, for just a few minutes here. Uh, if, you're, if your Bible is like mine, it says his final greetings is the end of Colossians. And it says, uh, Tychicus will tell you all about my activity. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that, we, that he may encourage your hearts. 
And with him is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who was one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. And these first two men are just, they're deliverers of this epistle. They're carrying this epistle with them for the Apostle Paul from Rome to Colossae. And so um, those two guys are just delivering the message and, and giving an update on the Apostle Paul. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow um, workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras is who is Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand uh, mature and fully assured in all of the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the churches of Laodiceans and and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Hand, Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So we want you to look at three things from this text of Scripture, and we're going to un- unpack this in regards to how we live. The first one is introducing the ministry partners in manifesting Christ. Introducing the ministry partners in manifesting Christ. It is not uncommon for the Apostle Paul to identify those who are participating with him in this ministry. It's not uncommon for him to mention them by name as he closes out a book. He often will give thanks to a certain group of people or recognize a certain group of people who have participated with him in that specific ministry. And the Apostle Paul had a number of different friends or partners in ministry that he recognizes throughout his letters that he uh, encourages and confirms as being a part of his ministry. What the Apostle Paul is making clear in all of these affirmations of these men is that he's not doing this alone. It'd be easy to exalt the Apostle Paul, right? And think here the Apostle Paul is doing all of these things alone. He wants us to make sure that we understand that the Apostle Paul is not doing all of this work alone, right? The, apostle, the last thing the Apostle Paul would want for us to do is to glorify the Apostle Paul. He wants us to glorify Christ. And so he doesn't point these people out so that we will glorify these people. He points these people out to understand that it is the church as a whole that's accomplishing these tasks so that no individual in the church gets glory for the task that's accomplished, but Christ gets glory for the task that's accomplished, Right? That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 14, when he talks about the gift of tongues, he says, be careful that that you're not performing a gift for your own self-edification and not the edification of the whole church and for the glory of Christ. And so it's not uncommon for him to point out the fact that these guys were working with me, these people were working with me in this process. Romans 16, if you want a text to kind of affirm this, there are 26 Partners, the Apostle Paul mentions in regards to his ministry. 
26 people that are working with him to accomplish the task that God has put before him. This morning, we meet 11 of them, and I'm going to give you some information about each one, and I just want you to follow along with me. In your notes there, I've put down each one of the men's names and also the verses that refer to them in the New Testament, except for Luke. I didn't include all of the verses, that, that or Paul. I think both of them, I left some of the verses out but because um, we wouldn't have enough sheets to cover those two guys, but... For the most part, you see that these men are very insignificant. There's not a lot of notes about them in the New Testament. But there are certain characteristics about them that will help us understand our importance and our significance when it comes to manifesting the glory of Christ. So let's look at them very quickly. The first one is Tychicus. And Tychicus was, uh, in, this, in this case, he was a fellow prisoner with Paul in Rome and also with Onesimus. And he um, and the Apostle Paul writes this letter from that prison, and he gives it to Tychicus and to Onesimus, and he asks them to bring it to the church and to communicate with the church the um, what's going on in Paul's life, what what's happening in Paul's ministry, all of the things. Kind of, they didn't have phones or cell phones or any of that stuff back in the days here, right? And so there wasn't a way to communicate like we would, so they would send messengers. And the messengers in this case, uh, these two men would carry, would carry the letter, the epistle, but also they would give kind of a firsthand, okay, here's what's going on in Paul's life. Here's what's going on in Paul's ministry. He's referenced in our text as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. He shared in Paul's uh, imprisonment in Rome. He stood with Paul. We'll see him in, if you look in the book of Ephesians, he stood with Paul at the riots that took place in Ephesians chapter 19 as the Apostle Paul is leaving Ephesus. There's a big riot that breaks out, and Tychicus stood with him or was with him during this time. He accompanies Onesimus to deliver the epistle of the Ephesians, the epistle to the Colossians, and the epistle to Philemon. So these two men likely would have been carrying all three of these epistles with them which were written from Paul's Roman, in, Roman imprisonment, and they would be delivering them to these three churches that were in the same general area. So Tychicus is, is most noted for the fact that he was a messenger of sorts and a deliverer, somebody who would carry from place to place a message from somebody else. He wasn't the actual uh, author of the message, but he was just the one who was delivering the message. He would communicate the message to those who were receiving it, and he was a, a type of a mailman in that he would deliver the, the epistles as well. The second person in the text is Onesimus. Onesimus is also noted because he shared in Paul's imprisonment in Rome. He is also noted because he was given these letters to, re, to deliver them to um, the church at Colossae. But most importantly, Onesimus carried with him the epistle to Philemon. Onesimus is referred to as a faithful and beloved brethren in our, a brother in our text. If you study the book of Philemon, Onesimus was a servant of Philemon. Onesimus is most known for the fact that he stole from Philemon. He took something from Philemon that wasn't his, which during these days would have been um, responded to by possible death, but by some form of of punishment that would be pretty rigid. So when Onesimus gets found out, he runs to after stealing this stuff, he runs to Rome. 
And when he's in, when he's in Rome, he meets Paul in prison. He obviously gets caught or he gets caught up in something else and ends up in prison with Rome, with, with Paul in Rome. And while he's in prison with Paul in Rome, guess what Paul's doing in prison? He's complaining and murmuring, Lord, why did you got me in prison? I can't believe I'm here. This stinks, right? No, what, is, what happens to Onesimus when he's in prison with Paul? He gets saved, right? That's exactly, what every, that's exactly what should happen in your darkest moments of life. People around you should be getting saved. Not hearing your complaints or your murmuring or how bad life is for you because it was bad for Paul. I mean, every one of his imprisonments was for doing the work that God had called him to do. And, you know, he had the right to complain. True? But he chose not to. He chose to take that moment to realize that God was sovereign in that moment. Amen? God had put Paul in prison, even though the Roman or the, 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 the local soldiers were the tools that it happened. He wasn't there by accident. And so he saw his, he saw his being there as a... As a um, God, under God's sovereignty, and he began to share the gospel with people. It's like sometimes, I remember, I can tell you story after story of people who are in the hospital, and there are people who are in the hospital that you go in and visit them, and then all you hear is complaining about how they don't want to be in the hospital. And then you go and you visit other people, and all they can say is, thank God he put me in the hospital because I've been able to witness to this nurse and this doctor, and they see it as a, as a purposeful thing and not an, an accidental thing. So Onesimus goes to prison. The Apostle Paul is doing what he does, preaching the gospel, and he gets saved. And the Apostle Paul does exactly what he ought to do. He sends Onesimus back to Philemon, and he tells him, go back and, 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 and give him this letter. And you can read the book of Philemon. It's one chapter, and it's the letter that Paul writes to Philemon to get him to receive Onesimus back. It's a letter of forgiveness. It's a, it's a gospel letter. And Onesimus goes back, and, and he's received by Philemon, but he carries this letter from Paul to Rome. So we have this thief here that is used in this context, known for his thievery, right? Then you have number three, Aristarchus. We, we go into a different realm here. The first two are deliverers of this message. The third one is noted, that the, the, really the, the next three are noted as being Jews, their primary thing is that they are Jewish men. Okay, so we want to note that these are Jewish men. Aristarchus was a Jewish men, man. He was a fellow prisoner with Paul. He was with Paul at Ephesus, especially in relation to the riots. He accompanied Paul on his journey to Rome at the end of the book of Acts 27 and 28. You have the Apostle Paul on his journey to Rome. You can remember the story of the shipwreck and the Apostle Paul gets bitten by the snake and this whole time uh, this guy is with him on that, on that journey. And he's a fellow laborer with the Apostle Paul. But the main thing about that we can learn from this man, what we'll focus on is the fact that he's a Jew. John Mark He's, taught, he's called Mark here in our text. He's actually John Mark, which he, I was named after him. I am John Mark. And he was a, an apostle. Uh, he was a, a, a traveler with Paul, ministering with Paul on his journeys. We know him as a, coven, a cousin of Barnabas. They are told here in this text to welcome him if he comes. Now, there's a reason why they're told to welcome him as if he comes, 
John Mark was not known as a faithful servant of the Lord. So it was likely that if he came to Colossae, that they would reject him because he was not a faithful servant of the Lord. John Mark was known. He went with uh, Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And he was known to, when things got a little bit difficult on that first missionary journey, John Mark forsook them. He, 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 he didn't stay the course. He got, he got nervous. He was a young man. He got nervous and he walked away. And so when the Apostle Paul says to, to welcome him, what he's saying to them is, is, is put aside John Mark's failure. Forget John Mark's failure. Forgive John Mark's failure because he's now back doing the Lord's work. He's now working with the Lord. And so um, he also causes, causes in the second missionary journey after he has forsaken um, the apostle Paul and Barnabas, he then causes a rift between um, Paul and Barnabas because Paul doesn't want anything to do with John Mark and Barnabas wants to take him with him, probably because it's his cousin, but whatever. Um, he, he, Barnabas wants to take him, Paul doesn't want to, so Paul takes Silas and John Mark goes with Barnabas. So they split up. The Bible says in Acts that they had a heated confrontation over this. It was no small thing. And, and, and yet, the Apostle Paul tells to the church of Colossae to receive him back, to, to welcome him, to listen to him, to obey him. And matter of fact, in another text, the Apostle Paul encourages the church that uh, John Mark is now a, a healthy part of the work. He's been restored. So here you have somebody that has forsaken uh, the, the ministry of the Lord and come back to it. And we're gonna come back to that. That's an important thing to remember. The, the next, the last Jew that's mentioned here in the context of mentioning them as Jews is, is Jesus or Yeshua in the, um, in the original languages and, and he's also known as Justice. And we don't know anything about him at all except that he was a fellow laborer with Paul. Otherwise, he is unknown. Then we have three Gentiles. Epaphras is the first one that's mentioned. He's a Gentile, likely the pastor of this church. We hear about him in Colossians 1.7, where he is the one that's communicating this message. So he's likely the, the pastor of the church. He was a fellow prisoner with the apostle Paul. And, the, um, and Epaphras was well known for his prayer. He was a prayer warrior. He was a guy he talks about here in our text that he was, he was known for going to war with going to, going to war in prayer for those believers there. He's a, here's a guy that it may not be out in the public eye all the time, but he's in his, in his back closet and he's praying hard. I've heard people say to me, man, I just can't do anything for the Lord. I'm, I'm physically incapable. Maybe I'm, I'm sick a lot of times, or maybe I can't get around very well. I'm just too old to do any of this stuff. And, and here's a guy who found his, found his ministry in the prayer room. How many of us, how, how much, how, how, how can, does our physical um, fitness affect our ability to pray? It doesn't, does it? You can be in the prayer room all day and, and be physically unfit. I'm not encouraging physical unfitness, but I'm saying to you that whatever state you're in, God has something for you to do. And here's a guy that was noted for being in the prayer room, noted for being a prayer warrior. And you guys, I, I've talked to you before. You know people that have been prayer warriors. And you know something? They're the most unnoticed people. But, but when, it all, when it all boils down and everything has come from, from um, 
has come to the surface. Do you know who gets often noticed the most? It's those prayer warriors that you find out that, oh my goodness, that person has been praying fervently and God has brought forth good out of this. We all know people like that. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that the, uh, the, lesser, the lesser parts of the body he puts even more significance on than the more noticeable parts of the body. That's Epaphras, likely the pastor of the church, but, but noted for his being a prayer person. His being a prayer person. You know what? Being a prayer person simply means turning your radio on, off when you drive home from work for two hours. That is two hours of prayer. I mean, some of us think, oh my goodness, that is crazy. Two hours of prayer? Man, it's just like pushing a button and you have two hours of aloneness with God. Or some of you, four hours, depending on what, how far you, it's, it's a, I know that the commute around here is long and the commute becomes a point of complaint, Right? Instead of a point of opportunity. It's like I've just been given hours upon hours of just being able to be alone with God. But we don't count that as significant. Why does the Apostle Paul mention that? Because that was important to the Apostle Paul accomplishing his ministry. Somebody was praying for the Apostle Paul that he might succeed. And God was listening to their prayer. That's Epaphras. Luke uh, also, another Gentile, author of the book, book of Luke and Acts, um, possibly the only Gentile Bible author of any book. It's likely that the other authors are all Jewish. It's a notable thing about Luke. He was a notable physician. He was well known as a physician. He was a doctor traveling around with the Apostle Paul. We don't see him giving any physical help, but but he, was, he is noted as a physician. He was with Paul on his voyage to Rome, and he was also noted as being with Paul all the way to the end, in the end of the Apostle Paul's life. And I think 2 Timothy, it mentions that Luke was with him all the way up to the end. Then you have Demas. Demas is another Gentile. This is the third of the Gentiles. He was a fellow laborer with Paul. He was on Paul's journeys with him. But what do we know about Demas? Demas left the Apostle Paul, left the faith completely. The Bible says that he left the faith because he loved the world. So Demas, here's a guy who, was, who is noted as being a part of this ministry, as being a helpful part of this ministry, yet in the end, Demas forsakes the Lord because he loves the world. Then we have Nympha. We know nothing at all about Nympha except this. She was a woman. That's an important truth, isn't it? She was a woman. And that, I believe that that's the reason why she's in the text here. I think the Lord is making a statement in this text that women can participate, should participate in the body of Christ. Should be a part of it. I also believe this. That she was the host, she, her job, her role was hosting the church in her home. We might minimize that. Oh my goodness, that's not very spiritual. Man, when, when, that, when, that, when those snacks come out at the host's house, that's pretty spiritual to me, right? That's, pretty, that's a pretty good blessing. I'm thinking that's spiritual. You think about the fact that that, that is noted here as a part of Paul's ministry. 
It's not a minimizing it at all. Nympha is the, is the, is the, is, is, I think it's meant to draw in that the fact that there aren't any, uh, uh, gender is not significant in our service to the Lord. Never should be an excuse. And then we have Archippus, which is, um, scholars say likely the son of Philemon. He's mentioned in Philemon 1 2 along with Philemon's family. It is possible that he was the pastor in Philemon's home. There was a church in Philemon's home. We see that in Philemon, and it's possible that, that Archippus was the pastor of that church. And the Apostle Paul just refers to him as a soldier. And here's another term that's used that's unique in the context here. This guy was a, soul, he was a warrior. He doesn't say he was a warrior in prayer, but this guy was a warrior. He was one that, would, that you would want to go to battle with. And when you're not in battle, maybe not want to be with. But you know how that goes. It's a, this is a guy that was a warrior at heart, a spiritual warrior. And the Apostle Paul re- encourages him in the text to remain faithful, right? To, to remain constant with what he is doing. Because the battle can be hard. Amen? Even the warrior needs encouragement to stay faithful. Even the warrior needs the encouragement to stay true to the gospel, stay true to Christ. And that's what uh, Archippus was being uh, encouraged by Paul in that context. And then last, the last of these 11 um, is Paul. And Paul was the author of this letter. The Bible says in Galatians 6, 17 that he was marked by the, he was scarred by, by the marks of Christ. I think that's an idea. It, it, it's, it's very easily connected to when he says, remember my chains. The Apostle Paul is saying that my life is marked by Christ, including the scars on my body and the chains that I wear. Everything about me is marked by Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, for me to live is, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Everything about the Apostle Paul's life was marked by Christ. Paul's specific ministry was that he was a communicator of God's truth. He received messages from God uh, as a prophet, in a sense, or an apostle, and he wrote those messages down, and he communicated those to his church. He was an apostle, one who was sent out by God. So these are 11 notable participants in the closing of Colossians that teach us the importance of of each individual and the whole in relation to manifesting the mystery of Christ. Now that brings us to our second point, our second thought this morning. And that, sim- that simply is this, inferences, inferences of the, mis- of the ministry partners for the church. What can we learn from these ministry partners as we look at the church, the church is called the manifest Christ. We have the, the same calling and the same commissioning. What are some things that we can learn from these men and women that will help us understand how the church should function? Number one, and this is an area where you get to take notes. Number one is it takes a plurality of people to manifest Christ. It takes a plurality of people to manifest Christ. One person is not capable, there's no individual that is capable of properly and fully representing Christ. 
There are individuals that are giving certain gifts and certain abilities and certain strengths that the Holy Spirit is working through you, and it is in that gift and that strength that the Holy Spirit is manifesting through you that is the manifestation of Christ, but it is never complete. It is never the full manifestation of Christ. It demands, listen, the manifestation of Christ demands the participation of every individual in the body of Christ. Christ is, get this, Christ is so magnificent, there is no individual that's capable of manifesting him. If we get to the point where we think we manifest Christ on our own, we have minimized Christ to a level that is almost blasphemous to him. It takes the whole church working together, each one manifesting the glories of Christ for Christ to be worthily manifested or glorified. Think about it this way. In, in, Roman, in Revelation 5, 9, and 7, 9, it talks about salvation happening to every tribe and every tongue, to every people and to every nation. And it says this, why does the whole world have to be saved? Because that is what Christ is worthy of. It takes worship of Christ in every ethnic group in the world to finally get close to reaching what Christ is worthy of. And then we can go one step further and say this, there will be a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and it will be at that point that he will finally receive what he is worthy of. Every single one of us has to participate. Why? Because Christ is worthy of all of our participation. And there's not a single individual in this building this morning that can manifest Christ on their own. You have a gift, thank God for that gift. Use it to its fullest, but you need that person sitting next to you for their gift. I think of husbands and wives in so many ways. The Bible says in John 1 that Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth, right? He was full of grace and he was full of truth. And it's so interesting because I've seen so many marriages where one of the partners is grace and the other partner is truth, right? Why? Because not one of those partners can manifest Christ. But they both must. I've also found this. The greatest, the greatest means of division in a home is that one of them is grace and one of them is truth. Instead of saying this, we are grace and truth because Christ was grace and truth and I can't do it on my own. It's a, it's a humbling reality. It's, it leads to a selfless living when you realize that person sitting next to me is necessary if Christ is to be worthily exalted. And listen, when we push people away and say, Lord, we'll just exalt you by ourselves, we're minimizing the worth of Christ because he's not just worthy of your worship, he's worthy of their worship. It takes a diversity we see this in the family. We see this in the local church. We see this in the universal church. The local church is this assembly here. The universal church is all believers all around the world. And then we see this in the world. Worthy manifestation and glorification of Christ is only when the world has bowed its knee to his lordship. Not any individual, but all individuals. Then Christ will be exalted to his worthy place. 
Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11 says, Therefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that, at the, that, uh, that is above all names, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because of verse 5 through 8, that Jesus humbled himself to, to the death on the cross. It was Jesus Christ's humility and obedience to the Father that, that um, makes him worthy of every man's surrender. Amen? Yeah, I thought you might agree with that. First of all, it's a plurality. The second thing that we learn is it's a, a diversity of people that manifest Christ. It's a diversity of people that manifest Christ. It's a diversity of gender, men and women, working together to manifest Christ's glory. It is a diversity of ages. We didn't look at these guys' ages because I didn't know what all, the, all their ages were, but I can assure you that they were not all the same age. You have young people. You have older people. You have ministers that are um, teenagers and ministers that are in their 80s. You have all different participants in this. You have different ethnicities. You have Jews and Gentiles or what we would call racists with uh, African-Americans or Caucasians or Hispanics or Asians or Indian or whatever other might be out there today. I don't, if I've missed one or misstated one, I don't want to offend. But the, the idea of it is, is that there is a, there's a necessity for the diversity in those who manifest Christ. I'm thankful that we have a, a sense of diversity here in our uh, church body as we manifest Christ. There are those who are called brothers, those who are called ministers, those who are called servants, those who are called prisoners, those who are called fellow workers in this. There is a diversity when it comes to the role that we participate in when, with glorifying Christ. A variety of people or a diversity of people are necessary if we're going to uh, properly manifest the glory of Christ. Galatians 3.28 says it this way, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. It's like all those walls are broken down. It doesn't mean that you break down all the roles. The walls are broken down, the roles aren't broken down. The roles are important to the glorification of Christ. It is through the roles that we glorify Christ well. But the walls are broken down. This means no one, is, no one is less significant or more significant when it comes to this, with this process. Listen, Nympha, who hosted it in her home, and the person who, who does things like that is equally important to the Apostle Paul who ministered the message. I guarantee you what we would do in this day and age is we would want to minimize her and maximize him. Because we have this opinion, this this view of things that the Lord never promotes. He that is smarter, he that is more successful, he that has more money, he that has higher position is more important. Wrong. He who serves Christ in whatever capacity that God has enabled them to serve Christ, he or she who serves Christ is significant in whatever capacity that they serve Christ. You can clean toilets for Christ and be significant. Amen? It's true. Diversity of people in the work of the Lord. 
Number three, under this second point, it is flawed people that manifest Christ. It is flawed people that manifest, manifest Christ. Onesimus was a thief. John Mark was the one who had abandoned. Demas walked away from the faith completely. Judas, the Bible says, was the devil. And yet God used these people for his glory. There isn't a single individual on this earth that is perfect. Amen? So therefore, God uses flawed individuals. We need to all know that. The only way that we can work together is when we accept, number one, that we are flawed, and we accept, number two, that we must show grace to others who are flawed. You never will work together well as a church until you accept those two things. And I believe that the Apostle Paul mentions these people to let us know that it's not about perfect people. Right? John Mark could have been like, oh, I abandoned you guys. I don't really want to be a part of this anymore. I'm not worthy anymore. No, John Mark got back into the program, got back to work for the Lord, and was told by the, the people were told by the Apostle Paul, receive him, accept him back. He is to be restored. If God only accepted perfect people to manifest Christ, there would be no one to manifest Christ. Right? But God shows mercy and grace to sinful men and women. He humbles us. He makes us his own. And then he uses us for his glory. And by God's grace, I'm okay with that. It is the church that is to manifest the glory of Christ. And if they're to do that, they must recognize that they are fallen and others are fallen and be gracious to them. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication or let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but such as is good for building people up, as fits the occasion that it may administer grace to those who hear it. The fourth thought under this point is simply this. It is gifted people that manifest Christ. I'm going to just go through this very quickly. Tychicus is called an encourager, a messenger, and a deliverer. Onesimus was a server or a servant. Epaphras was a prayer warrior. Justice was a comforter. Luke was a physician. Nympha was a host. Archippus was a soldier and a pastor. Paul was a author. What you note from this is simply that the church is full of diverse gifts. And if you read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you will find this. Don't be proud of your gift. Don't compete with others for their gift. And don't look at other, but everybody else's gift as being more important than yours. And don't look at your gift as not being significant. Just read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. There's a diversity of gifts for a reason. And whatever way you can serve, listen to me, whatever way that that. The church can serve Christ, it must and ought to do it. The last thought this morning is the implications of the ministry partners for you and me. The implications of the ministry partners for you and me. Number one, simply, you are important to the church's manifesting Christ. You are important to the church's manifesting Christ. Every individual collectively is important to the church's purpose. You're not just here to receive, you're here to give. You're not just here to grow, you're here to glorify. You're here to worship. 
Christ. You're here to magnify Christ. It's not about you. You think about that. When we think about whether we're going to come on Sunday or not come on Sunday, is our attitude uh, us or is it him? Is it him? The Bible says in Romans 12, verse 4 through 6, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us all use them. And 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven says, Now you are the body of Christ and individual, individual members of it. Just note, number one, that you are important to the church's ability to manifest Christ. Number two, your unique disposition doesn't hinder you from participation. Your unique disposition doesn't hinder you from participation. Whether it be your ethnicity, your gender, your age, your circumstances, your financial status, your physical health, your abilities, your careers, none of these things hinder us from participating in manifesting Christ. No Christian has an excuse to not work to manifest Christ in their church and in their life. Nothing about you hinders you from participating in the manifestation of Christ. Whatever it might be that you have in your mind right now, you're sitting there and you're thinking, and you've heard this voice in your head saying, you can't do it. And then it always ends with, because of, and then you fill in the blank. Right? Anybody ever felt heard that voice before? Nobody wants to raise their hand this morning. Your unique disposition does not hinder you from your participation. The next under this point is simply, your unique failures do not hinder you from participation. No matter how bad your past has been, no matter how big your sins are, no matter how far you have strayed from Christ, He is merciful and gracious. Amen? His blood is sufficient to pay for every one of your sins. It doesn't matter what you have done. The Apostle Paul was a murderer. He wrote this book that we're reading here. We're reading the book of a guy who was a murderer. And now he's telling us how to live life. Are we good with that? We're okay with that, aren't we? Because we know that this book was written by whom? It was written by God. Right? Your unique situation, your unique failures, your unique weaknesses, whatever they may be, do not hinder you from serving Christ. Listen, we live in a generation that, that doesn't do anything. I'm, maybe I'm overstating this. But we live in a generation that does little for Christ on the basis of the fact that we're not enough to do it. And we're constantly trying to get better to do what we should already be doing. I've often said this, that Christ equips those that are active. He doesn't activate those who are equipped. 
Do it. If you feel in your heart a call to do it, then do it. Go after it with all your heart, soul, and know this, that you're not going to succeed unless Christ accomplishes it. And an old theologian scholar, I think maybe even a missionary, said this, attempt, attempt things for God that unless he intercedes, they will fail. Attempt something for God that unless he gets involved, it's going to not succeed. The Bible is full of people like that. That is Hebrews 11. And some of them failed, but succeeded. (laughs) Because they woke up in heaven. Don't let your unique failures hinder you from serving Christ. And then the last under this point is your unique gifts don't hinder you from participation. A lot of different gifts mentioned in the scriptures. I don't even believe that that's exhaustive. I don't think the gifts that are mentioned are exhaustive. I think that there are a number of gifts that the Holy Spirit works into individuals today for the purpose of magnifying and manifesting Christ in this world. And he has given you one of them. And maybe he's given you a few of them, but he's definitely at least given you one of them. And he wants you to use it. And he wants you to use it well. He wants you to use it for his glory. He wants you to use it in dependence on his spirit. And he wants you to use it knowing that the person sitting next to you also has a gift that must be employed in order for Christ to be glorified. 1 Corinthians 12 verses 14 through 18 says, For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am an, not an eye, I am not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one, as he pleases. You may not be an eye, you may not be an ear, you may not be a toe, you may not be a finger, you might not be a liver or a heart, but you're something. Young people in here, you're something in the body of Christ. We need to start teaching our kids that. They grow up thinking they got to grow into being something in the body of Christ. No, there's something in the body of Christ already. They might grow in their understanding of it. They might grow in their ability to participate in it. And they might even, the Lord might even change their gift as they get older. But there's something in the body of Christ now. And if you're really old in here, we don't have any really old people in here. Well, we do have a couple really old people in here. If you're really old, listen, you have a role in the body of Christ. It may not be the same role that you were when you were 20 years old. But you have a role in the body of Christ. And maybe God has even changed your gifting. But listen, don't let the devil tell you you're not significant to Christ. He is destroying Christ's glory by making us all individually think that we can do it. You know what that does? It makes Christ equal with us. That's blasphemy. He is so far above us. And yet he condescends to us in his mercy and his grace. Many are employed and necessary for the glorification and manifestation of Christ, and you have been chosen to be one of them. The devil may try to convince you that you're not good enough, that you have failed too much, that your failures are too big, that you've drifted too far, that you're not gifted in the right ways, that you're wrong for the tasks because of this or that. 
These are all lies and must be met with resistance, wisdom, and faith in Christ. Listen to what the word says, not what the devil says. May we as a church be a place where members are involved in the corporate manifestation and glorification of Christ. And may it be for our good and for his glory. I just want to encourage you with that this morning. I hope that that this is helpful to you to see these guys. And maybe you fit into the role of one of them, or maybe you've wrestled with your importance or significance or value. You do have a significance and a value in that. In closing, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you've never entered into a relationship with Christ, you don't know Christ as your Savior, listen to me just very quickly. We're all sinners. We've broken God's law. We've broken God's will. We've broken God's character. We have resisted his drawing. Everything that we could do, the Bible says that we're, we have become his enemies. And, and yet, as his enemies, God sent his own son into this world. His name is Jesus. He came into this world. He lived 33 years on this earth, and he lived perfectly. He never committed one sin, never gave into temptation one time. And therefore, when he died on the cross, he didn't have to die on the cross for his own sins. He was able to die on the cross for our sins. The Bible teaches us this, that if you will, by faith, trust that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he rose again the third day, and that he is now offering you as a free gift eternal life, and you believe that and you receive that, the Bible says that you're born again, you're saved. It is simple. The world will tell you, do all of these different works and all of these different things, and then you'll be saved. And Jesus says to you, just trust in me. I've already done all of those works needed for your salvation. Just trust in me, and then you'll be saved. And that's what the scripture teaches. So my challenge to you, if you're an unsaved person here this morning, there's nothing like being a follower of Jesus. And it simply takes faith. Just trust him. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we do thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word, for the life that is in it and the life that can be experienced through it. We pray that you would bring salvation to the hearts and lives of individuals that may not know you. We pray that you would bring activation to those who have been perhaps inactive or uninvolved or seen themselves as unimportant to the work of the ministry. Um, help them to resist that temptation, to guard themselves from Satan's voice and to hear your voice and follow your truths. Please bless the remainder of our time this morning, the meetings that are to follow in Jesus' name. Amen.